Welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm Mina B, and I'm a licensed social worker, mental health educator, and author of Owning Our Struggles. I'll be chatting with experts, wellness advocates, and others about the power of community care in improving your mental health. We'll delve into topics such as friendships, managing difficult relationships, and most importantly, how to cultivate belonging and support in our lives. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Julie Shelfo is the founder and executive director of Get Media Savvy, a nonprofit using pop culture to establish a healthy media environment for kids and families. She is an award-winning journalist, a former New York Times staff writer, a media ecologist, an author, and a parent. Shelfo was moved to start Get Media Savvy after reporting on the youth mental health crisis and seeing suicidality affect children at ever younger ages, and recognizing how a multitude of factors, including absent regulations and the lack of widespread media literacy, has created an unhealthy, unsafe media environment. Now, her coalition works to create a widespread cultural shift so that everyone recognizes the existence of the media environment and its central role in human affairs. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Mina. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for just being a part of the show today. I'm really excited to chat with you because I think in our current climate, being a really digitally focused society that we're in, I think this is a wonderful conversation for users, people who engage in the internet, as well as parents. So I know you're the founder and executive director of Get Media Savvy. Can you tell us about what that is and what made you start this initiative? Absolutely. So Get Media Savvy is an organization that's working to fight media chaos and build a healthier media environment for kids and families. And the reason I was moved to sort of convene this coalition of people to work together was because after many years of reporting on mental health, and in particular youth mental health, I reported basically the worst story I had ever worked on in my career, which was about growing rates of tween suicide. We are now in a situation in the United States where the number two cause of death for 10-year-olds is suicide, meaning more kids die from suicide than from any disease or from birth defects. And that's really troubling. To get to that level of mental health problems, there are some really profound issues in our society and in our behavior, and we really need to make some changes. And I realize they need to be big cultural changes. And so I brought together people who are working on different facets of the problem so we can begin talking about and creating shared interventions and language in order to galvanize the country at large. Mm. Can you speak to what exactly is happening where 10-year-olds are 
dying by suicide? What are they possibly being exposed to? And how is engaging on the internet or even having social media impacting their mental health and well-being? Sure. So we need to be careful when we talk about suicide. The cause of a suicide is never just one thing. So I don't want people to be alarmed. It's certainly not the case that social media alone is causing these suicides. But one of the things that it's very easy to forget is that social media is completely unregulated. There are no federal regulations limiting what can be on the platforms. The product manufacturers have done, frankly, a really lousy job of providing parental controls that work. And so when your child goes online, they are exposed to a wide range of really what is NC-17 content. And this includes messages that are violent, messages that are racist, sexist, and just images and words and ideas that maybe kind of crack at their self-esteem. So this whole issue of likes, you know, we as adults go on social media and when we don't get a lot of likes or responses, it doesn't feel good. Imagine if you are 10 or 11 or 12, 14 and you post something and you don't get a response, it can really begin to affect your feelings about yourself. So what we are seeing at scale is that the normal ways that children grow and develop healthy self-esteem, healthy emotional skills, even some foundational academic skills are being eroded because the habits that we used to have, which were primarily in-person communication, spending time with other kids, spending time outdoors playing, are being replaced by these online behaviors and activities that are eroding healthy development. You know, that is one of the things I really wanted to unpack with you. How is technology eroding healthy development? What are some things that you feel that when it comes to childhood development in ways, you know, when we talk about our social infrastructures in American society and a lot of communities not necessarily having access to playgrounds, green spaces, also just thinking about safety and community violence where the more we're exposed to social and environmental trauma, the more we isolate and hide inward. And now, you know, a lot of parents are just relying on technology to entertain their children. Or like I said, if you are in a neighborhood with poor social infrastructure, you don't have resources to allow your child to engage in play and curiosity. And so how is technology honestly impacting childhood development? You know, that is such a good question. And there's so much to unpack there because what's happening is we have multiple overlapping problems that are really affecting our kids. So I want to start by saying this is not my opinion, what the research tells us. So we've known for a long time what attributes provide a healthy environment for children to grow. And that's a safe, supportive, nurturing home. That's a safe shelter, access to food and medical care, access to healthy air, plenty of time with other children to play, and an educational environment that's enriching, has lots of books, and with a skilled teacher and caregiver who can provide a nurturing, developmentally appropriate set of educational materials. Technology is not designed by educators. It's not designed by child development experts. It's designed by corporations that want to 
get you or your child to spend as much time as possible online so that they can sell advertisements, harvest your data, and sell that data to get profits. So to start, technology is not a replacement for loving care from an adult. It's not a replacement for peer interaction. It's not a replacement for learning basic literacy skills. What's happened is in our society, we have the most disparate income that we've seen like almost since feudal times, or actually I read one report that suggested it's worse than feudal times. So we have working people now that are working two and three jobs just to be able to provide food. They're not able to tend to their children and give them the attention that they deserve. You know, and I'll count myself in this group. With my first child, I was able to give him a lot of attention. I'm very privileged. We were a two-income home. I was able to take time off work and spend time with my kid. But by the time I had my second child, I was so exhausted. There were definitely times I put him in front of a screen just to catch a break. And it was only later that I learned that time in front of a screen actually became more of a problem because it was instilling certain habits and ways of thinking that were exactly the opposite of what I wanted to teach my kids. So to answer your question, the way in which screen use is affecting child development is really varied and is happening in lots of different places. In the home, it takes children away from interacting with their parents and siblings. By being in our society with so many screens, we're constantly inundated with scary news that kind of traumatizes us. And as you said, makes us go inward when what is really good for well-being is going outward, connecting in person with our neighbors, spending time with friends and family. And it's affecting what's happening in schools because many schools are now adding technology products to the classroom, even though there's no data that shows they're helping children's educational outcomes. But it does make things a little easier for teachers and administrators. You know, you said something that was really interesting going back to how social media is designed. I'm an adult and I use social media. I have a platform on various social media channels and I still feel the effects that you explained, right? There's this false reward. We're engaged with likes. We are building our self-esteem around likes and views and all of these things. And then social media is also designed to keep us on the app and they create new ways for us to engage with our audience from it went from still photos to now excessive video content. And you wrote a really wonderful article called The Risks of Parenting While Plugged In. And in this article, you talk about an experience where a child was in the elevator with their parent, pretty much trying to get their parent's attention. And it was the parent who was pretty much engaged with their device, right? And the child started to act out in ways where some people will call it a tantrum, but what that child really wanted was nurturing care and attention from the parent, but they were busy with their cell phone device. And so can you help parents now understand how their relationship to social media is also impacting childhood development when parents are most likely in the home engaged on their devices. And then when we're so busy, we're so tired, we're so consumed by doing and productivity, I do find that sometimes parents 
feel that the best way for them to get a break is to put the device <laughs> in front of their child or turn on the TV. And now instead of having family time, we're all on our cell phones or on our iPads. And so what are the risks involved when parents are now glued to their devices and how is that impacting childhood development from that perspective? Mina, you hit the nail on the head with that question because the research that's coming out now is really pointing to the fact that just as we've always known, children do what their parents do, not what they say, right? So if we're all addicted to our devices, our kids are going to follow in our footsteps. And at Get Media Savvy, we are actually working on a major initiative for parents that we're going to announce in the spring. And so we invite people to sign up on the website to be the first to learn about it. But we realize that until we as parents get our behavior under control and that we learn to model healthier use of technology and setting limits and prioritizing interpersonal, in-person, face-to-face interaction, we're not going to be able to help our kids. You know, there is no parenting mistake that I personally haven't made. I have three sons. They were born within five years of each other. And it was at the same time that all of this technology was invented. When my oldest son was born, there were no iPhones, and Mark Zuckerberg worked at a small company called the Facebook. And by the time I had my second son and went to take him to pre-K, every parent in the neighborhood was on Facebook, and they were literally training their children to smile and be photographed every day at school drop-off. You know, before that, we only took pictures on special occasions, and suddenly children were being photographed constantly. And by my third son, who's now a teenager, he is growing up in a world of TikTok. And even though I banned TikTok from his phone, he still sees TikTok all the time because his friends send it to him. He also goes on YouTube, which now is running shorter and shorter videos. Instagram has short reels because everywhere in our society on technology, it's kind of a race to the bottom with trying to get people's attention. So the situation is not actually hopeless, though. As a parent, one of the things you can do is set some limits. So in our house, we do not even get our phones until after breakfast. That sounds really wild and crazy, right? I remember when Blackberries were around, there was a sign I made on the bedroom door that said, no Blackberries before 8 a.m. And my mom's like, why can't you eat Blackberries before 8 a.m.? But it was because my husband was so accustomed to checking his Blackberry first thing when he got up. But that actually took away from the only time we had with him. You know, he worked late into the night. And so my children only got to see him for one hour before they went to school. So if you can carve out times that are cell phone-free times in your house. I mean, another thing that we've begun doing in my home is that we are very careful to make sure we read print reading material. My husband and I both read for a living. We read on our devices all the time, but the children don't know we're reading a legal brief or a scientific report or the newspaper when they see us staring at our cell phone. They think that we're just online. So we're very careful to still get print subscriptions, to have times that are just for books. We actually have started, and we don't do this all the time and we need to do it more, but over the winter we make like family reading hour and we all get a book and we just sit together. And it's the most wonderful thing to just be present with your family and doing something that's not about shopping, that's not about being entertained, that's not about being online and just connecting. So as parents, you know, we definitely do need to be more reflective of our own behavior and think critically about 
what example it's setting for our children and how we can help them become healthy users of tech. Mm. You spoke to something earlier that I would really love to dive into. You talked about when Facebook pretty much first launched and you would see parents dropping their children off to school and now they're taking all of these excessive photographs of their kids to post online. And now we do see a rising culture of children becoming I can't necessarily say content creators because their parents are the ones creating the content, (laughs) but we do see a lot of parents creating accounts for their children at a very young age. And then we also see that children are now becoming influencers or child stars via YouTube or even Instagram because their parents are the one positioning them and really creating this content with their name and their likeness and their image. So with the information you know about technology and just being media savvy, are there also things that you can share with parents who maybe they do have their children growing up to be content creators and influencers and they're utilizing their child's name and likeness to really, I guess in many ways, help their child develop a platform or engage in entrepreneurship. I'm not sure what the goal always is, but I'm wondering if there are some implications in that as that child gets older and if there are things that parents should be aware of. Any adult who has been in the public spotlight at all understands there's a wide array of risks, considerations, variables that affect your life by having your information public. So because we're now in the digital age and so much is public, people think, well, there's nothing I can do. I might as well just put it out there. But I actually disagree. Because I'm a journalist, as all of these things became available to us, I've been very cautious. I do not post pictures of my children publicly. I want them to be able to grow up without feeling like their lives are entertainment for other people or a product that I'm selling. I also want them to be safe and to be able to make mistakes and not feel uncomfortable that images of them or experiences of theirs might be viewed by other people and judged. You know, adolescence is hard. And it was hard growing up in a time when there wasn't social media. I admit that I love seeing pictures of my friends' kids online. I love keeping up with my friends who live on a different coast. I love seeing my nieces and nephews who are growing up in other states. But I have encouraged those family members to not share them on social media platforms because then those images are public and can't get used by anybody. But to instead make a private email group, share that in a private chat. And so, you know, you as an adult can make choices about how much of your child's information to share. And I highly recommend starting with the maximum amount of privacy and discretion for your children and going from there, as opposed to sharing everything and then deciding later, oops, that wasn't a good idea. That information sounds really, really helpful. I've seen a lot of young children who are now 18 suing their parents for sharing their private information online and children can't really consent to having an Instagram profile. You know, it's their parent who is making it. And so it's really interesting hearing this information and I do hope it's really helpful. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm your host, Mina B. 
I'm sure some people are also listening in and wondering, well, are there any positive aspects of technology that can help enhance a child's ability to socialize or build community? Is there anything that we can know about technology or just engaging online that can have some positive benefits? So there are studies that show in very specific, limited situations, there can be positives for social media. For example, there was a study conducted in, I believe, Iran, where they use social media to target adults with diabetes with a reminder campaign that they should take their medicine. And that led to a higher rate of those people taking their medicine and seeing their doctor. And that's undoubtedly a good thing. And if you are a member of a marginalized community as a child and you live, let's say, in a family or in a community where you cannot find people who share your identity or understand your struggles, there is no question that those children have been able to find community online, and that can even be life-saving. So I don't want to take away from that. But in general, for most children, if they spend their time forming communities online and they don't develop interpersonal real-life communities with other kids, what we are seeing is that their social, emotional growth, their ability to interrelate to other people is actually being reduced and they are actually not developing the emotional resilience they need to grow up in a healthy way and to be able to form attachments and skills for navigating life. You know, being a human is hard. Humaning is hard. It is hard to go through life and learn to be part of a group, learn how to not always get what you want, accept rejection, tolerate frustration. And the best way we know, the proven way we know to develop those skills is through interpersonal interaction. So in general, we have seen a number of social problems grow in numbers and in seriousness since the rise of these social media platforms. We have seen an increase in children who are self-harming. We have seen an increase in eating disorders. We have seen an increase in pediatric psychiatric emergency room admissions. And we have seen an increase in suicidal behavior and in completed suicides. We do not have any massive intervention to stop that. And the intervention we need is for parents to reduce their children's access to these platforms to reduce the amount of time they have on these platforms and regulation from government to require these platforms to make parent controls that work and limit the harmful content that is served to children. So I wish I could, you know, sound more upbeat about these platforms. And as a media maker and as a content maker, I am grateful that social media has arrived so that we have more diverse points of view than what the mainstream media used to provide. You know, Twitter, for example, played a big role in the Arab Spring and in Black Lives Matter. And I think those were positives that we can point to. But in general, mostly what I see is negative. Well, I'm happy that you're shedding light on this because I do think that 
based off the information that you're sharing and the data that you're sharing, it does sound like there are more negatives to consistently engaging on social media than there are positives. And I think the more we shed light on that, the more that we can engage in a more harm reduction approach where we realize reducing our time on social media can really help with our own ability to socialize and build community. And I think what's really important about this conversation is that it actually applies to both parent and child because we are in such a digitally heavy world where everybody, you know, is impacted by social media in so many different ways. And so I'm curious to know for parents who are listening who they realize that some of the things that you're sharing, the harmful effects of social media, they actually see it manifesting in their child. They realize that their child is constantly glued to their phone. They're always on social media. Every time they engage on social media, it's clear it impacts their confidence. It impacts their self-esteem. I even hear some people say they feel outcasted if their parent says, you can't have social media. And now you're like, well, everybody in school has an Instagram platform. And now that impacts my self-esteem because I'm the only one who's not allowed to be on social media. And so that is even triggersome for some children. What are some tips or practices that you can give to parents to, one, help their children build high levels of self-esteem around how they engage on social media if they're going to utilize it? And what are some just other tips or practices that you think parents should know if they are going to allow their children to have social media platforms? So the first thing is delay, delay, delay. The Surgeon General said that he doesn't think there's any child under 13 should be on these platforms. I agree. And many of the experts I talk to think actually that we should wait even longer. I made my kids wait until they were 12 to get a phone. I regret that I didn't know about wait until eight. Wait until eight is a pledge that parents can take with the peers in their community where they all wait until their kids are in eighth grade to give them devices. I think that's terrific. I think delaying their access to social media is definitely the way to go. Limiting their access to social media. And if and when you decide to give them access, I would think very carefully about which platforms you let them use and also spend time with them to see what they're seeing. You won't be able to see all of it. Kids have learned how to override parent filters. Many of them have Finsta accounts or second accounts where they're seeing information they don't want you to see. But the more time you can spend with them seeing what they see, the more you'll begin to be able to help them try to make sense of some of the memes they see, some of the jokes they see, and help them understand which things really aren't funny. Another thing that parents can do is think about what else their children could be doing when they see their kids on social media. When children are very young, we want them to develop what one researcher calls broccoli brains. You want all of their neural synapses to grow in every direction, to be stimulated with their senses, with their mind, with their bodies, in how they play, their creativity, you know, the materials they have access to, and all the creative play that comes from using blocks and even just being out in the woods. And when they're on devices, it shapes their brain in just a very singular direction. It trains their brain to have a certain type of response, and their brain goes on to continue craving that kind of response. And when they get it, they're very frustrated. 
So if you see your child is always reaching for the screen, one thing you can do is say, hey, instead of screen time right now, why don't we spend the next hour coloring together? Why don't we go out and play? Why don't we cook? Why don't we sew? There's a million different activities you can engage in that engage the children's brain and bodies in different ways than just using screen time. And then a final you know, tip for parents, and it's something that is very challenging to do because these tech companies make it hard, but make sure you use whatever parent controls are available to you. That includes making sure you shut down the internet at night. That makes sure that you don't allow your children ever, ever to take their screens into their bedroom. You think they're asleep, they're not. Your child is up texting at 10, 11, midnight, one. All you need to do is keep their phone with you for one night and you will see which of their friends are sending messages. And so keeping the phone away from the child and out of their bedroom allows them to get good sleep, allows them to have time and space to think and engage in other activities. And so it's really about setting healthy boundaries. Mm. And to speak to parents who have younger children, more so in the toddler phase, I've heard a lot of information around someone named Miss Rachel on YouTube who is very, very popular. And what Miss Rachel does is she shares a lot of pretty much educational information specifically to toddlers. So a lot of singing, playtime, all of that. And a lot of parents, you know, put their child in front of the TV to listen to Miss Rachel either sing a song or read a book or do some sort of activity, but it is through the screen. So for parents who have smaller children, can you speak to what some positive or maybe negative implications can come from having their children learn through this format where they feel they might be too busy to engage with their child. And so they let them watch Miss Rachel and they might be saying, well, all she's doing is singing, you know, (laughs) Mary had a little lamb or all she's doing is reading them a book. So there's no way that this could be harmful. Is there anything you can speak to about that? Absolutely. You know, we are what we eat. And that is true not only of food, but of the media content that we take in. And it's also true of our experiences. Whatever we do, we become. And those are habits that we continue to practice. So having your child listen to music and songs is a wonderful thing. But there is no reason you need to do that through a screen. And if you do it through the screen, you're actually inadvertently training your child that they need a screen and that they need to get access to that information from a screen. So one thing you can do is go old school, you know, go buy a CD. You can get them cheap now for a dollar and, you know, play some Sweet Honey in the Rock, play some, you know, Pete Seeger music and put on your own adult music for them, sing to them. You know, if you're cooking and you can't play with your kid, you know, you can be singing along and let them listen to you. So all of that type of auditory stimulation without the visual stimulation is going to serve their early childhood development needs better than the screen time. You know, I remember when Baby Einstein videos came out and I thought, oh, this is so great. I'm going to make my kids smart. But what I realized is it actually was teaching them that they needed to be entertained to learn. And when I put on the music, they were able to experience the music. 
I'm all about the low tech. As a parent who has gone and bought every fancy baby toy out there, you know, I quickly learned like every parent that's ever existed in history, the best gift you give your kid is the empty box, right? (laughs) They take the cardboard box, (laughs) they're creative, they play. Anything you can do to keep your child busy that isn't a screen. I take a box. I used to, when they were little, I would take a box of uncooked pasta. I would dump it in the box and I would hand them a wooden spoon and they would play. And those creative fantasy, you know, experimental opportunities for them to just play and creative are so good for them. So if a parent wants to listen to Miss Rachel, I'm sure Miss Rachel's great. I'm sure she is providing some educational benefit to kids. But I think the idea that we need to give them a screen for them to be nurtured and educated is actually the wrong idea. And that we all collectively need to just limit the amount of screens we're putting in our kids' lives. Mm, limit, limit, limit. I think that's the big takeaway from this episode, really figuring out ways that we can reduce our interactions with the internet, social media, and just technology in general, and really getting back into the concept of play, play with our hands, play with our minds, thinking of dramatic play. Like you said, giving them the empty cardboard box and see what they make of it and sing a song while utilizing it. You know, and I think play can also happen for teenagers as well as what's something you've been speaking to also. So play doesn't diminish as a child gets older. We want to maybe build some form of a social infrastructure in our home for children to feel like there are things that they can do to be stimulated even while they're getting older. And Mina, I mean, your podcast is a wonderful testament to the benefit of different types of media that aren't just screens, right? I mean, this podcast is two people talking. We're going on half an hour now. We're able to have a depth of conversation that you can't have in a soundbite. You can't have it in a TikTok video. And the people who listen to this are people who are interested in a deeper idea. They're interested in thinking. They're interested in reflecting on themselves, bettering themselves. And that's something that they got to as an adult after years of thinking, learning, shaping. That's what I want for our children. I want our children to grow up and to be listeners to your podcast and have the attention spans to be able to sit still for an hour and think and read and reflect. And if we keep giving them short content that constantly interrupts himself, or if they get the slightest bit bored, they swipe right and they don't continue to listen or to read or to look, they're not going to have the basic skills that they need to be quality media consumers, quality thinkers, and also adults who are capable of investing in deep relationships. So, you know, I'm really looking at the long horizon here. Yeah. You know, what you're speaking to is the power of long form content and we need to keep it alive. It makes me think about sometimes I'll go on a website to read an article. And as soon as the article pops up, it says TLDR, which stands for too long, didn't read. Let me just summarize it for you since you're probably not going to take time out to read this two minute article. And it's like, when do we get here? You know, like read the full article, read books more, engage in long form content because it is so beneficial. And I do hope that listeners are able to get a lot of resources and tips from what you shared with us, Julie. So before we wrap up, I know you actually have a new national coalition that you're launching soon. And so can you tell us what it is and the goal behind it? 
So I can't give all the details yet because we're not, you know, ready for everyone to know. But as part of Get Media Savvy, we are creating a coalition for parents who want to fight back against media addiction. We're not saying that media and technology is bad. Obviously, I've spent my entire career in media. We need media. But just like we don't want people to drive without having had a learner's permit and getting driver's education, we don't think people should be using the media until they have basic media literacy skills, until media that is harmful is properly regulated the same way we regulate any other potentially harmful device or medicine. And so we're going to help parents who are like-minded from anywhere in the country join together and work to pressure our lawmakers to finally put some regulations in place, encourage our schools not to automatically adopt digital interventions in classrooms when we know reading and writing are what's best for helping children grow academically, and giving parents the tools they need to be able to think critically about this stuff. And so, you know, if you want to learn more, our website is getmediasavvy.org, and you can sign up there and get notified as soon as our announcement is ready. And the more of us who stand together, the healthier we can build the world for the kids. And that's what community care is, you know, being able to stand together, because that is how we create change in this world. And so, Before we go, speaking of community care, this is a question I ask all of my guests before we wrap. But Julie, I would love to know, what does community care mean to you? That is such a good question. I think that community care is the process of being present with other people and recognizing that there are days when you need to take the mic and be the leader and stand up to support someone else who might be struggling, and that there are days when you're struggling and you need to ask for help and to let people help you. You know, I feel so blessed because my children attend a very inclusive school with parents from a wide variety of backgrounds, and we've sort of been on the parenting journey together. And there is nothing harder than parenting. I mean, you face every kind of challenge and every kind of emotion in yourself and in your children. You have to learn to sort of deal with your emotion. And seeing the way in which these folks have all, we've all just tried to be there for one another and stand together through challenges. You know, we're living in a time where there's so much emphasis on the needs of individual groups. We forget to think about our shared humanity and the fact that all of us are sort of on this planet together and our well-being is really dependent on one another. So community care for me is sort of being open to being part of that experience and making myself available to folks in my community, maybe even if I don't know them that well, and also being open to hearing about the needs of others in my community and trying to show up for them to the best of my ability whenever I can. Julie, it has been such a pleasure talking to you and learning so much from you today. I'm sure listeners gathered so much information and resources from you, and I'm sure they want to know how they can stay in touch with you. So can you let our listeners know where they can find you? Sure. My personal website is julieskelfo.com, J-U-L-I-E-S-C, like Charlie, E-L-F, like Frank O. I'm always spelling my name. And I list, you know, public events there and also have a newsletter. I don't like bombarding people's inbox. I think we get too much information now. So I try and just post things on my social media very occasionally and send the newsletter maybe once a month. 
And my social media handles are at Julie Skelfo. So Julie, it has been so wonderful chatting with you. And thank you so much again for being a part of the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this conversation informative, please share today's episode with your friends and on your social media accounts. And of course, it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of the Very Well Mind podcast as we explore the power of community.